Father, when the psalmist was disturbed, he, uh, he talked to himself and he said, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Now, that was a stroke of genius because there are times in the Christian life when we, well, what we do is we wind up listening to these crazy thoughts that we have in our minds rolling around. And we kind of work ourselves up into a dither about things that we have absolutely no control over. And, uh, but he got a hold of himself and he started talking to himself and, and just asked himself, why are you in despair? Oh, my soul. And why are you cast down within me? And Lord, sometimes it's good for us just to lay it out specifically. Well, I'm upset over this, or I'm worried about this. Or if this happens, and this happens, and this happens, then the worst happens. Sometimes it's good just to lay it out. Sometimes it's good just to get a legal pad and write it out and get it right in front of us. But he doesn't stop there. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? And then he says this. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. We look back over our lives, Lord. Now, how many times have we been in the ditch? How many times have we been just about at the end of our rope? How many times have we been right on the edge just about to go over and you showed up and you saved us and you did something and the relief was just overwhelming. We're grateful that the Lord Jesus is our Savior all of our days. He, he uh, went to the cross and died in our place. Um, the Father has drawn us to know him. You sought us. We didn't seek you. You gave us faith so that we could trust in Christ alone for our sin to be forgiven. And then we are born again. And then we start the process of growth and the process of maturing. And as we do that, we're now we're walking with you, and we, we face situations. Uh, the difficulties don't go away. Sometimes they actually increase after we know you. And what, what happens is we find ourselves in threatening situations from time to time. And when we do, um, we, we, we just get overwhelmed. Uh, the psalmist said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. We, we wonder, we're in these situations, and, and, and there's not closure on them yet, and we wonder, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there? And not only do you have closure, um, 
you're already there, what it is we're worried about, and you're past it with something else for us. So I would pray tonight. Here's, what I, I guess, what I'm asking for for us. For the guys that are just feeling the weight and uh, the pressure, I pray that you'd give them relief. That they can trust you with whatever the outcome is. They can just flat out trust you because even if the outcome comes about that they don't want, you're still God. You're still in charge. Uh, the worst might happen. Well, if it's, if it's your plan, it, it, it seems like it's the worst, but in actuality, the way you work, Lord, is that you work strangely. Sometimes you take the worst and shock us, and then you, you resurrect it to good. The fact of the matter is, we don't know what we're doing. We don't have a clue. Oh, on a few, here and there we do, but mostly we don't have a clue. But you know all things. And you control all things. So once again, here in the middle of the week, we entrust our souls to you. Give us what we need. Encourage us. Straighten us out. Adjust us where we need to be adjusted. Get us back in the sink with you and who's in charge of our lives. Help us to submit. Help us to learn. Teach us. For the guys that are hurting, broken hearts, give them comfort. Let them know that you're with them. The Lord is nearer to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Bunch of wounded guys here tonight, Lord. We need you. We do. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We acknowledge it. We glory in it. We ask you to carry us, give us what we need, help us to use our gifts, help us to take the next logical step and trust you for the rest. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, our nation has been in crisis for the last several years. And everybody knows it, everybody's aware of it. And as one great sage commented, he said, never waste a good crisis. Well, we all know what that's about. The idea there is, well, if there's a crisis, don't waste it. Figure out a way to use it for your political gain. I'd like you to turn with me tonight as we continue our study in David's life uh, to Psalm 29. In, in Psalm 29, this theme might be surprising to you, but the, I think the theme, the theme of Psalm 29 would be this. The theme would be, never waste a good thunderstorm. You probably weren't expecting that. I'll be honest with you. Um, I cannot ever remember teaching on Psalm 29. I'll go even further. <laughs> As I was studying Psalm 29 this past week, it was like I'd never seen this psalm before. Now, I've read it many, many times. I remember my grandma saying to me, uh, we called her Nana. I remember Nana saying to me um, years and years and years ago, she was in her late 90s, and she said to me, she said, you know, Steve, I saw something in my Bible today I have never seen before. She's probably 96 years old. Well, she'd been reading that thing for 75 years. 
And I remember that really struck me. How in the world, because, you know, her Bible was just torn up and beat up. and That's always a good sign. Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. And she had one of those old beat-up Bibles, notes, you know, stuff. I mean, everything was marked. But she said, I saw something in my Bible this morning I've never seen before. How can that be? That's just how it works. You just can't plumb the depths of it. Uh, Psalm 29, as far as I'm concerned, just got inserted in the Bible this past week. (laughs) Now, I know I've seen it before, but not like I've seen it this week. Never waste a good crisis. In actuality, what David is saying in this psalm, and see, here's what I want to do tonight. Um, I want to talk, we've talked about a man in a man in guidance. We're looking at David's life and the stuff he dealt with, we're dealing with. So we're looking at his life, we're looking at the issues, we're looking at the baggage, we're looking at his fear, we're looking at his, his burden that he carried around, all this stuff. And we have all this information on his life. It's there for us. God, God used his life. And you look at any of the guys in the Scripture. You look at Joseph. You look at the guys that have a lot of biographical uh, we have a lot of bi- biographical information on. You look at David, you look at Joseph, you look at, uh, you look at Paul, you look at Moses. Um, you, you're going to get glimpses into their lives and the issues and the struggles and the pressures and the fears. Um, now, what you see in every one of those men's lives is that they would go through storms. You have storms all the way through the Bible. Uh, Tonight, what I want to talk about is a man and his storms. Because uh, they're inevitable. They're absolutely inevitable. Now, Psalm 29 is about a man and his thunderstorms. This is a fascinating psalm. Um, Let's read it. This psalm cracks me up. I still can't believe it's, ne- I, it's never really grabbed me before. But, but let's read it and, and just, just understand what he's talking about here. It's thunderstorm, and you'll see it as we read through it. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. You know, he had the, the priest going to the temple. They had to put on their garb. We don't have to do that because Jesus is our great high priest. We're in the new covenant. This was old covenant. Just to go ahead and let you know what he's going to do. Uh, and I, I don't want to deal with all of it. I will in a minute, but just go into three. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God, uh, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Look at verse 7. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That's lightning. He's talking about, well, here's what you've got here. You've got David who lived in Jerusalem, and it's as though he is looking to the north. And Jerusalem is a high point in the topography of the land. He's he's looking north, and when he starts describing certain places, he, he talks about Lebanon, He's talking about a thunderstorm. And it's like he's looking out from his palace 
and he's looking due north, and there is a thunderstorm that's coming across the Mediterranean. Now, where he is, he's only, what, 35, 40 miles from the Mediterranean. It's off to the west. And you got some big-time major league storms building on that Mediterranean. And then they come north, and they come north to Lebanon, and then they start making their way down, and they start coming south over Jerusalem, and um, they, they, they kind of filter out from Lebanon, they go about 200 miles south to Kadesh, into the desert, and they fizzle out. But he's going to describe a thunderstorm here, and there's more to it than meets the eye. Because when he said, note, note how he starts this. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. David, um, David was a man after God's own heart. We know that. Deeply flawed man, but he loved the Lord. When you look at the nation of Israel, one of, the, one of the messages that was always given to the nation of Israel was that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, all their might. And they were told to avoid idols. You shall have no other gods before me. Yet the story of looking at the history of Israel is that they were always tempted to leave the Lord God and go after these idols. They're always tempted to go after the Lord God and go after, here's a familiar name throughout the Old Testament. They were always tempted to go after the Baals, B-A-A-L-S. Probably you can make a case that the chief idol that was contending against the Lord God was Baal. Um, he was a false god, and when you study the kings and you, you, you look at each of their lives, they all had to make a choice. And the choice was, am I going to serve the Lord God or am I going to go after the false gods? Uh, if you remember Elijah in 1 Kings chapter, uh, what was it, 17, when Elijah first shows up, he confronts a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab was the worst king up until that time. Uh, Ahab knew the truth of the Lord God. He, uh, he had married a godless, wicked woman by the name of Jezebel. The worst thing you could ever call a woman is a Jezebel, biblically. Uh, wretched, wicked, nasty, a murderer, a liar, a deceiver. Um, he marries this woman. She's a Baal worshiper. Her father's name was Eth Baal, which means with Baal. She came from a long line. And when he married her, she brought with her 450 prophets of Baal who sat at their table. So the, this King Ahab became a Baal worshiper, forgot the Lord God. <clears throat> Here's the thing about Baal worship. One of the things that they believed about Baal was that Baal controlled the agricultural cycles and he controlled the environment. They believed that. It was critical. So when Elijah shows up for the first time, if you look at 1 Kings 17, in fact, why don't you flip over to 1 Kings 17? He shows up and he's going to talk to Ahab and he's going to make a pronouncement to Ahab. 1 Kings 17, 
Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely, watch this, there shall be nor dew nor rain these years except by my word. Forget thunderstorms. You think Baal controls the environment? Not only will there not be any thunderstorms, there's not going to be rain. I'll tell you what else there's not going to be. There's not even going to be any dew on the grass. Because the Lord God's going to dry this thing up. You think this false God controls the rain? You can't live without rain. You can't live without water. You can't do it. And they're giving glory to Baal for sending the rain. They're giving glory to Baal for watering the crops and giving them uh, bountiful yields in their harvest. Elijah says, we're going to show you who the one true God is. We're going to dry this sucker up. And you're going to learn, you're going to learn the hard way because you refuse to listen. So immediately, um, Elijah becomes public enemy number one because he stood up and he told the truth about Almighty God. Later, um, what happens is, is that if you look at uh, chapter 18, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab. Now we're into three years. Go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. You can imagine the, the famine was severe because it had rained for three years because Elijah says God's shutting it down. He runs it. You can do whatever you want. Um, this Baal worship was unbelievably wicked. Uh, they worshiped Baal because he sent the rain. They, all of their stories, the religious services were all based on the Baal myths, the Baal stories, and they would publicly reenact them. Uh, Baal, for instance, uh, and, and they had temple prostitutes, they had uh, male prostitutes, sodomite prostitutes, female prostitutes, because all the stories were sexual in nature. Uh, Baal killed his own father and castrated his father. Baal had two wives, and they were his sisters. And it got worse from there. They would reenact these Baal stories in public, and you had to have different kinds of prostitutes in order to enact publicly the sexual stories which they would do. And if you had a problem with that, and you spoke up against it, you would be called intolerant. I imagine. I got to tell you something. I spent two days 20 years ago in the Dallas Seminary Library reading dissertations on Baal worship. And what I realized is we're surrounded by it. We're absolutely surrounded by it. Nothing new is under the sun. Uh, later on, Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal. You remember that story. And... Uh, you know, you go ahead, make your sacrifices, do all this. And you can go to Carmel today, and you can see some of the altars. And what they would do, they had tricks where they would come underneath the altars on the side of the hill and uh, in, in order to look like fire was coming down. And somebody, you know, they, they, would, uh, they would light a fire from underneath, and it'd be camouflaged. But 
you know, he's mocking them. He's saying all kinds of things to them. Maybe Bale's, maybe Bale's in the men's room is basically what he was saying. And they're cutting themselves and they're doing all this. And you know the story. And then he, he, he sets up, he gives them all day, and then finally he does, his, uh, he does his sacrifice. Water it down, water it down, water it down, water it down. And then, boom, the fire from heaven comes down. It was interesting because then he tells his servant to look out over the Mediterranean. From Carmel, you can see the Mediterranean. And he sees way, way off in the distance, first time in three years, he sees a what? Anybody remember? He sees a cloud. Just a tiny little cloud. And before you know it, Baal had been defeated and God sent in the rain. Now, you see, that's what, that was the worldview they were surrounded by. As David's in Jerusalem, he is surrounded by other nations. He is surrounded by some people, even in uh, Israel itself, who quietly and secretly at this particular point, in their heart of hearts, were Baal worshipers. See, there were two worldviews, just like there's two worldviews, you know, what, what, what we're up against. You see? It's always the one true God against everything else. It's the one true God. Uh, we, we have an entire educational system that is based, that is based on, on mocking and blaspheming and denying the one true God. Do we not? That's where we are. The great universities that were built to the glory of God, that were built for the equipping of, of ministers to equip the saints, have all turned. Have all turned. There, 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 in, in fact, um, was it recently Harvard? Their chaplain died, who was a homosexual. It's just, it's just remarkable. But really, it shouldn't surprise us because the downward slide is what you see in Israel and is what you see in Judah. So with that context, go back to um, Psalm 29. You see, this, this, is, this is more than just a thunderstorm here. He's teaching theology and he's looking at his life. As he is uh, watching this storm come through, He, he is, uh, he's learning from the storm. So let's go back with that background and let's look at the opening verses again. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. No other God, ascribe it to the Lord. He owns these storms. He sends them. He sends the rain. He waters the earth. He is the provider. He creates, the, the, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Every gift that we have comes from him. You can't live without him. If he dries up that water, if he dries up that rain, we're done in 72 hours. Once those, if those reservoirs ever go dry, and it's the grace of God that they don't go dry. Do you remember how desperate they got in Atlanta a few years ago? They got so desperate, the governor prayed to Almighty God for rain. Because that Lake Lanier was down to fumes. God sent the rain. Shoot, our governor prayed for rain last year, and it came. Okay. Can't have too much of that, though. It's not diverse enough. All right, now watch verse three. You guys still with me? This is, see, you got to understand something. The, the, see, we, we, we hear this, we hear so, so much of this stuff 
being distorted. And we have so much misinformation in our culture that, I mean, a lot of times we go through and we really don't even stop to think anymore that God sends the rain. But he does. He sends rain. He sends storms. He sends calamities. Amos 3, 6. Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? I don't know if I buy that. Well, the insurance companies do. It's in the policy. They'll call it an act of what? Okay. Watch this. Now he's going to describe the storm. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. God's in this. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself. There are two questions here tonight that we're going to answer. Number one, who owns the thunderstorms? Now, that's probably not the question you were chewing on all day as you went through life. But it's a broader question. Who owns the thunderstorms? And, and then I got a second question we're going to deal with that's going to get to your life and what you're dealing with and what I'm dealing with. But let me just do the first one. Who owns the thunderstorms? The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The voice the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. These massive trees in Lebanon. How did Solomon build the temple? He talked to Hiram, who was the head forester up there in Lebanon, and they'd ship, they'd cut these trees and send them down to Jerusalem to make the temple. Massive trees. God would send these storms, and you know, he would break those cedars like toothpicks. <coughs> Watch this. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Sirion, which is Mount Hermon, like a young wild ox. The trees on those, um, on those mountains, those powerful trees, when God sent the storms, those trees would shake, they would break, they would skip around and move around like young cattle. That's the power of God. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Those are, those are lightning bolts. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. You have to put up with me here tonight with this cough. The... Um, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So what you've got here, he starts in Lebanon, works 200 miles to the south, to Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. I remember the first time, why would a deer calve? Out of fear. I remember the first time <coughs> I ever coughed. That's a joke. I remember the first time I ever heard thunder. I was seven years old. I grew up in Bakersfield, California, which is the crown jewel city of California. And the guys who are laughing have been there. Uh, you don't have thunderstorms in the San Joaquin Valley. I'd lived there all my life. I'd never seen lightning, and I'd never heard thunder. About five o'clock at night, playing football out in the street with my friends. It's getting dark. We had a lot of trees in our street. And uh, so we were kind of isolated, and I really couldn't see what was going on much past where we were. But off in the distance, obviously, a thunderstorm was rolling in. Uh, I didn't see the lightning for some reason. It must have been behind me. wasn't aware of it. And all of a sudden, 
For the first time in my life, I heard thunder. And I mean, it was like it was right on me. And um, I, I'm going to tell you what. I thought Jesus, had, I, I thought it was the rapture. <laughs> I did, because we taught that really strongly in my church. And I was a little concerned because I was still on the earth. But <laughs> I, I, I really was, because uh, our church wasn't real big on eternal security. So that, that was a whole other issue. But... Uh, um, I tell you, I heard that, and I, I mean, I mean, I was in that house. I was in that house in record time. I had no idea, and I mean, it freaked me out. I'd never been in a thunderstorm in my life. It's frightening, is it not? Yeah, it is. <coughs> the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare, and in His temple everything says glory. Um, one of the most famous hymns ever written is by William Cooper. His name is um, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. So it looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. The hymn is God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. What's this all about? Christians go through storms. There are times in our lives when we are in a storm such as we have never, ever, ever seen before. And, what, and, and William Cooper was a man who knew the storms. He, he was a man today who, uh, well, he, he was institutionalized on several occasions because he tried to kill himself at least three times, and he was a Christian. Uh, he would probably be diagnosed today as someone we would call manic depressive. I mean, this guy, this guy had a tough time. This guy struggled deeply with depression and with despair. But he also knew the scriptures and he knew the sovereignty of God. And he knew that in spite of the many, many storms that he went through, that God was actually at work in his life through the storms. Uh, this, this God that we serve is not only in charge of the universe and the physical universe and the storms and the thunderstorms and the hurricanes and all of this stuff. You ever watch the Weather Channel? You need to get a life. <laughs> um, it's kind of fascinating to watch all that stuff. You know, for the longest time, they, I mean, they couldn't do that. 
But you can watch that stuff developing up over Alaska and the, you know, the Bering Strait and coming down and all that. It's all God's design. It's all God's design. Isn't that amazing? And, and he, he, he's up to, he runs the whole world. Flip over to Genesis 8. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now, you know to whom that was said? It was said to to Noah after the flood. That's all right, which is interesting, but because basically... See, we, we kind of got these cycles down. Now, once again, God said this to Noah in Genesis chapter 8. All the way through the rest of the Bible, they're trying to attribute the agricultural cycles. There's a time, there's a time you sow. There's a time that uh, you reap. There's a time that you harvest. And it's the same thing every year, is it not? Yes, it is. Absolutely, it's the same thing every single year. And all the way through the history of Israel, you've got these movements that are coming along and saying, no, it's not Yahweh. It's not the Lord God of Israel. It's this God, it's this God, it's this God, it's this God. In in fact, there is no God. Now we've developed to the point, there is no God. There is no God. And if you think there's a God, there's something wrong with you. And our universities are full of that. If you believe that there is a God... Uh, you're, in, in, in many situations, you're not going to get tenure, depending on what your discipline is and what area you teach in. If you don't sign off on the propaganda sheet, you're finished, you see. That, that just is not acceptable. So once again, we have these false idols. This whole system that the Weather Channel is all about. Well, now we're just, you know, 38 more days till the winter solstice. What the heck's that all about, Genesis 8? You see, the Farmer's Almanac. What's that all about, Genesis 8? And we're trying to give everybody credit except the Lord God who put the whole thing into place. Now, the reason I'm going to that is, is that David is about to mention it in Psalm 29. Okay? If you go back to Psalm 29 and you go to verse 10, what, what he's basically saying is, is that as he looks at this thunderstorm, it's not Baal, it's the Lord God. He owns the thunderstorm. And now in verse 10, he goes back in history and says, not only does he own the thunderstorms, he owns the greatest storm ever known in the history of the world and there'll never be another one like it. Know what verse 10 says. The Lord set as king... At the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. Um, The Lord will bless his people with peace. So he goes back to Genesis 6, the greatest storm, the, the greatest calamity the world has ever known. And once again, when you quote, unquote, study science, they'll tell you, well, that could, you know, that could, that couldn't happen. 
You want to read an interesting book, read The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris. It's a remarkable book. It tells you how indeed it could have happened. All kinds of scientific evidence that, quite frankly, has never been answered that I've ever heard of. Fact after fact after fact after fact. Uh, by the way, God said in Genesis 8, he sent the bow, he sent the rainbow, and that's a sign. I'll never do this again. He made a covenant with Noah. He put into effect these cycles that we take for granted. But they're the glory of God and they are the provision of God. So the question is, as David does this thing in Psalm 29, who owns the thunderstorms? God does. I got a second question. As we talk about David and storms, uh, thunderstorms are not the only storms that David went through in his life, and they're not the only kind of storms you're going to go through in your life. The second question would be, who gets me through a prolonged storm? Now turn over with me with Psalm 107, if you would. There are storms in life that are not physical storms. They're circumstantial storms. They're marriage storms. They're relational storms. They're health storms. They are um, career storms. Uh, they can come in a multitude of different ways, but they are storms in our lives that, that scare us, that frighten us, that take away our security, that take away our safety. If you remember the disciples, they got in the boat with Jesus on your way to Psalm 107. They got in the boat with Jesus. Jesus had been doing miracles all day, healing people left and right. They get into the boat. Jesus is exhausted. He goes to sleep. They're going to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, these guys were on the Sea of Galilee all the time, especially Peter. Uh, he'd seen some storms. He grew up on the Sea of Galilee. And as they're making their way across, where the Sea of Galilee is, you know, once again, it's further north from Jerusalem, but maybe 35, 40 miles from the Mediterranean. So you have this mountain range, you got the Mediterranean, then you got Israel, then you got some mountains, and then you got this dip, and you got the Sea of Galilee. And on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there's this ridge, it goes right up like that. You ever heard of the Golan Heights? That's the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's why that's so strategic. Because if an enemy gets a hold of the Golan Heights, they can just lob artillery shells right into Israel, I mean, as much as they want to. So it was a big deal for them to Israel to get that back in 67. But, but on the east side, you got the Golan Heights. And so once again, you get this ridge and it goes straight up several thousand feet. Well, from the east, you got these winds that come over from Iraq and then they come in and then they drop right down on that Sea of Galilee. And then you've got low pressure, high pressure. I don't know what it is. I'm not a meteorologist. But you got something coming in off the Mediterranean and boom, they meet. So you have storms all the time on the Sea of Galilee. It's really not unusual. They get in the boat with Jesus, and, and he's asleep. He's exhausted. And suddenly the storm comes. Okay, fine, storm. But it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And they, they quite frankly, had never seen winds this strong. They'd never seen waves this high. And they began to panic because they thought, that little boat they were in, they thought that sucker was going to break up. I mean, this was serious. And Jesus is asleep. And they wake Jesus up and they say, Lord, Lord, don't you know that we are perishing? 
Our life is about over. And what does Jesus do? You remember the story? Jesus gets up and he speaks to the storm and it is instantaneously calm. Instantaneously. You stop for a minute and you think about that. You put yourself in that boat with those guys. I mean, a half a second later, that storm, it's gone. It is instant calm. Now, who are they afraid of? They're afraid of him. Who is this? Who is this? That the wind and the sea and the waves obey. Who is this? Well, it's Almighty God. That's who it is. Oh, and then Jesus turned to them after he did this. And then Jesus says to them, he says, where is your faith? That's quite a story. That happens all the time in the Christian life. So we come and um, we come to Bible study on Wednesday night. That's great. Uh, hopefully you're spending time with uh, the Lord in the, in the Word of God um, during the week on a consistent basis. You're developing that discipline. If you're a night guy, if you're an evening guy on the evening watches, break out your Bible at night. If you're a morning guy, get your coffee, get your Bible open. And, and just don't read it, do it. Do it. Don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word. We're followers of Christ. So you've got your time in the word privately. Uh, you're here Wednesday night, that's great. I, I'm, I'm, uh, most of you guys here go to Stonebriar. Many of you go to other churches where the word of God is taught. Great. That's great. And we get pumped up, man. We'll hear something, oh, that's just wonderful. What a great insight. But there are times in life where suddenly we're in a storm. And see, the whole purpose of the storm is that our faith is, those guys didn't, they were getting in the boat. They just thought they were going across. No, their faith was about to be tested. Our faith is always being tested. He, he wants to see if we're learning the lessons. He, he wants to see if we're going to apply what we know to be true to this situation. You see? There are storms in life. They threaten to undo us. They frighten us. They scare us. They panic us. How in the world can you have... I mean, guys, look at it. Let's be honest. And I don't mean... I don't think I'm being an alarmist here by saying this. I just think it's real, and we're all here and seeing this every day, you look at what's happening in this nation on a daily basis, and it takes your breath away. It is astonishing. There is a movement towards tyranny that is relentless. And if you don't believe in a sovereign God who runs the world and everybody in it, how in the world can you have any stability in your life unless you're sticking your head in a hole in the sand somewhere 
or just watching the golf channel 24 hours a day or the food channel or I mean if 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 you're into escapism fine but if you're just looking around at what's going on it'll scare you to death how do you find any peace how do you find any hope how do you find any stability in this storm which is taking place here it, it I'm not making, um, well, you know what I'm doing. I'm just observing. You see it, I see it. It is breathtaking. The hubris, the, um, the lawlessness. It's a, we're watching it before our very eyes, are we not? How in the world can anybody Sleep at night. The only way you sleep at night is to believe that there is a God who has a plan and is working his plan and will take care of his people and who can be trusted no matter what comes. If you don't believe that, you're in trouble, you see. Now, once again, I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> but these are incredible times in which we're living. Incredible times. Uh, there is a storm going on, not only here, but in the whole world. Now, if you take a step back and you read your Bible, you can see, and I'm, not, I'm no prophetic expert, but you can see, if you've read your Bible and you read what's coming, you can see stuff being fomented and things being turned upside down so that it's all moving towards the prophetic plan where there's going to be a one-world government. Can't you see that happening? When's that going to happen? Who knows? It's going to happen. And some things have to... Uh, some things that are in place have to be removed. Before. It's a matter of degrees and stages. And, you know, that's, God knows all that. It's His plan. This isn't happening by chance. It's not happening just by the luck of the draw. Or, oh my gosh, I can't... There's a plan of Almighty God. You see? Don't forget this. He's always got his hand on his people. He always takes care of his people. Doesn't mean they don't go through hard things. Um, you got to keep going back to the Bible. I've said this before in here. We, we did a study a while back on the first six chapters of Daniel. And the reason I did that study is I kept hearing guys as I go around the country and I talk to guys privately uh, at conferences or in between breaks, I would hear three things from guys. I'm afraid we're going to lose our country. I'm afraid we're going to, I'm afraid we're going to lose our freedom. I'm afraid we're going to lose our free enterprise system. Maybe they didn't use that term, but they meant our, um, our system of commerce, we're going to lose it. And that's a system where there are property rights, and if you work hard, you can make your way, and you can achieve, and if you don't work hard, well, you don't work hard. Uh, if you're disabled, if, if, if you need help, we'll help you. But if you're an able-bodied, healthy individual, you work. That's how it's always been. That comes from the Old Testament. This is all being turned on its head. I'm afraid we'll lose our country. I'm afraid we'll lose our liberty. I'm afraid we'll lose our free enterprise system. 
Daniel lost all three. Went into captivity. And the hand of God was all over his life. Uh, you know that uh, you know that verse. Was that a storm? Oh, I'd say that was a storm. You know that verse in Jeremiah twenty nine. You'll see it in Christian bookstores, and it's um, what do you call that? Calligraphy. Looks kind of neat. You can put it in the den. Uh, I'm not making fun of the verse because you've got to understand the context of the verse. The verse is, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your welfare, um, not for, um, thank you, not for calamity. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your uh, welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. You know who that verse is addressed to? Israel, the people who went with Daniel into captivity for 70 years. God says, I know the plan. They lost their nation. They lost their liberty. They lost their free enterprise system. They lost their property rights. They lost it all. God says, I know the plans I have for you. To give you a future and a hope. Isn't that wild? In that same context, he says to them, oh, by the way, I want you to get married. I want you to get your kids married. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to live life. Were they in a storm? Yeah. Did God have a plan? Yeah. Does he take care of his people? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's either true or it isn't. If it's true, and, and it doesn't mean that we don't do what we can do while we have freedoms to exercise freedoms. We should do those things, obviously. But ultimately, we're trusting in the plan of Almighty God, Right? And we can have peace as we go about our work and we go about our lives. Am I making any sense at all? Or am I just kind of feeling the effects of NyQuil here? Okay. You ever had NyQuil over ice? I stopped at 7-Eleven on the way over here. And little ice, little of the... Anyway. That's what you call a storm. Nine minutes. I get this and this and this. Um, Psalm 107. Now, why are we going to Psalm 107? Because I like it. And it's about a storm. Look at verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships. All right, you think about the storms... You think Psalm 29, okay? David's in Jerusalem. He's watching this storm come down over Israel. Where did that storm come from? It came from the Mediterranean Sea. Let me tell you something. You had some doozy storms on the Mediterranean. You read the end of Acts when Paul was on that journey up to Rome. You ever read that story? I mean, those boys were in trouble. They were in trouble. And here's what's interesting. I don't have time to go to that story. But here's Paul, who's, 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 a, who's a prisoner. you got all these Roman guards, and there's such a storm, and there's such chaos, and, and they, can't, they can't control anything. When storms hit like that and you're out on the sea, you're, it's, you're just helpless. And before you know it, guess who is running the ship and telling them what to do? 
<coughs> the guy who has no authority, the guy who is bound, and the guy who is, uh, who's been charged. And he's the only guy that has any sense, that has any calm, that has any peace, that has any ethos, and they're freaked out and they're listening to the guy that has no position or no authority. Why? Because he knew the one who had authority. That's why. Watch this. Those who go down to the sea, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep or his wonderful acts in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind. There you go again. Who's in charge? God is. Is there a storm? Yeah. Why? He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul. Stop. I read it too fast. Put yourself in this position. They, you're in this ship. You're not on the Queen Mary. You're on this old ship. You ever seen some of the, the boats these guys had back then? My gosh. You ever seen a, you ever seen a replica of the Mayflower? There, there are houses in Dallas with bigger master closets <laughs> than the Mayflower. He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. They were at their wits' end. Literally, that means all their wisdom was swallowed up. That All their options, all their navigation, there wasn't a thing they could do. They were utterly helpless in that storm because of the power of the storm. Now, here's what storms are designed to do. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses. Watch this. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, here is a classic understatement. Verse 30. Then they were glad because they were quiet. <laughs> really yeah they were glad they were glad because they were alive so he guided them to their desired haven um, where's my George Whitfield book um, here it is George Whitfield greatest evangelist in the history of the church uh, you ever heard of the great awakening it happened in England it happened in America the primary guy that God used was George Whitfield he was a contemporary and a friend of the Wesley brothers. The Wesley brothers are more well-known. Whitfield, I think a case could be made, was used in a more extensive way than the Wesleys. Uh, they were used differently. He was a phenomenal preacher. He was a phenomenal orator. Uh, he knew theology. He knew God. He was a master communicator. Um, so many of the churches in England were just churches, they were just full of ritual, and there was no heart, and there was no love for God. They did not want Whitfield preaching. They would shut the churches to him. On one occasion, he was walking out, he saw a stump, he saw an open field, and he got up on the stump and started preaching. Before you know it, thousands of people were gathered. And hundreds of people came to know Christ. He would speak to 40,000 people without a microphone. 
He had an amazing voice. He had an amazing gift. God used him in England, and God used him in America. Benjamin Franklin really had no interest in Christianity. He would go out of his way to hear George Whitfield preach, and he would give to the ministry of George Whitfield because he was so persuaded by his message and the authenticity of his life. He was an incredible, incredible uh, <laughs> orator. Maybe one of the, maybe the greatest. I mean, there is a case could be made that Whitfield's the greatest orator in the history of the Christian Church. He crossed the Atlantic thirteen times. Let me just read a paragraph. Of the 56 years that George Whitfield lived, more than two years, some 732 days, were spent at sea. At a time when transatlantic crossings were still novel and extremely dangerous and never done for pleasure, Whitfield crossed no fewer than 13 times. His longest crossing in 1744 took 11 weeks. His quickest still required 28 days. It was an astonishing record for anyone of his time who was not a professional sailor. But it was seldom a trial for Whitfield because he loved the sea. You know, on one of his crossings, there was a magnificent storm that hit. He talked the captain into letting himself lash himself to the mast. And everybody was down beneath. And he's out there giving glory to God. He loved it. He loved to see the glory of God. He loved to see the power of God. And then at a safe moment, he was able to find some safety below deck. There are times, guys, in the Christian life, here's my question. Um, why, I say, Farrar, why are you doing all this stuff on storms? Because we encounter storms in the Christian life. And sometimes, and sometimes the storms don't go away after two or three or four days. The, the storms are prolonged storms. And when storms are prolonged and difficulty is prolonged, and, and the fear is on every side. And we are in tenuous circumstances. And we look out ahead, and all we see are more storms coming. We, we, we don't see much hope. We don't, see, we don't have much encouragement. Because as we look out on the horizon, what we see coming is worse than what we're experiencing now. So how do you find any peace? How do you find, how do you find any hope? When when the cancer is not going away, when it's not in remission, when, when this marriage, you, you thought by this point you would make this progress and you would be here and here, but you're not there, and quite frankly, it's worse than it's ever been. How in the world, how in the world do you keep perspective? How in the world do you keep going through all this? Paul Tripp has, has done an article, and I came across it. And I want to, he talks about five signs that your faith is being weakened. Let me give them to you real quick. Because see, this is what happens, this is what happens to us in a prolonged storm. Let me give them to you real quick. I'm not going to comment on them, I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, you find your heart giving way to doubt. You begin to doubt Scripture, you begin to doubt the goodness of God. Why? Because you are so fatigued and so worn out from being in a continual storm that will not go away. So you begin to doubt the goodness of God. Here's number two. Your heart begins to give way to anger. You begin to get angry at God because he has not relieved you. You begin to get angry at God because he has not delivered you. 
you begin to get angry because you're doing what you can do to be obedient. You, you, you get angry because you were trying to listen and respond, but no relief is in sight. So anger is in your heart. Number three, your heart is giving way to discouragement. You're, you're losing courage for the future. You're worn out. You're beat up. You're sick and tired of it, and you don't want any more of it. You're looking for relief. You're sick and tired of being in the gymnasium, and you want to go to the spa. But he won't let you out of the gym. So what happens? You get discouraged. You get weary in well-doing. Here's number four. Your heart begins to give way to envy because you begin to look around to friends. You begin to look around at other people that you know, and they don't deal with what you're dealing with. Their lives are free from that turbulence. Their lives are free from the pressure that you are under every waking moment of every waking day, and you begin to envy them and wish you could be like them. Uh, number five, uh, eventually your heart gives way to inactivity, and you begin to get passive, and you begin to give up, and you begin to live a life of resignation. That's a dangerous thing. And you quit fighting the good fight. He asked the question at the end of the article. He calls habits of faith. So how do you build your spiritual muscles during the wait? You must commit yourself to resist those habits of unfaith and with discipline pursue a rigorous routine of spiritual exercise. You run to the Savior of grace, knowing his grace never gives up, even though you are often tempted to. There are things that he's designed for you that will build the muscles of your heart and strengthen your resolve. The regular devotional study of the word. Consistent and candid fellowship. Looking for God's glory in creation every day. Putting yourself under excellent preaching and teaching of scripture. Investing your quiet mental time and meditating on the goodness of God. For instance, as you are going off to sleep. You know what I try to do when I go to sleep at night? I try to remember his mercies that day. And I'll tell you what else I do. If I'm a little, if I get a little anxiety, I usually go to sleep by saying, he whose mind is stayed on thee, thou shalt keep in perfect peace. And I'll just say that in my mind until I go to sleep. He whose mind is stayed on thee, thou shalt keep in perfect peace. I'm going to tell you something. I don't think Satan likes that verse. That'll put you to sleep because you're resting in the arms of the Lord. So last night, I'm done. So last night, I'm doing some research and I'm checking out a website or something. And I see this, uh, all of a sudden, I see Chuck Swindoll's picture on the right-hand side. And I'd never seen that picture before. It was a new picture. I said, what's that? And it, and it was a, an advertisement for a book he had written called Saying It Well. I never heard of this book. What is this? And Chuck's written on communication. I thought, oh, that'd be worth reading. I said, when did he do this book? I never heard of it. So I clicked on it. And then they had some excerpts, and I started reading the excerpts, and then just as you're getting into it, they cut you off. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very good ploy. So I downloaded it on my Kindle. And I've been studying this storm stuff, you know. And, and I'm looking at this, and I'm being pulled in, and all of a sudden, Chuck starts talking, because it's a book about how to communicate and all that. But then he breaks down, he breaks it down, and he goes way back, and he, he gets into things you never think about, like calling. 
your calling in life. He starts talking about his calling. And I start reading this stuff. And I had heard snippets about it over the years, but I never really put it together. I'd never really seen the sequence. And Chuck starts talking about when he meets Cynthia, and they get married. And he's, uh, he's working in a, uh, what's he doing? He's, uh, he's working in a machine shop. And so he's going to take classes, and he's probably going to be a mechanical engineer. And uh, they're married, and there was this, uh, but they had a law back then that uh, you had to serve two years in the military. And you'd probably get drafted, but if you weren't, and he's looking at his options, and he's just gotten married, and he doesn't want to, you know, and he's got a plan, and he's trying to get through school. And so he goes down and talks to the Marine recruiter, and the guy says, yeah, if, if you go ahead and enlist, we got a deal where we can promise you um, that you won't be deployed internationally. And, and, oh no, that's what they told him. I got it right here in my Kindle. And so he says, that's great. And you're in two years, then you're four years in the reserve. You'll say, I'll do that. And so he does it. And he goes off to basic training. And you know, it's just going to be a short while. And then he'll be back with Cynthia. And uh, after, you know, at the end of basic training, he gets his, his orders. And uh, guess what? He's going to Okinawa for a year. And this is missing up his plans. You know why he's missing? He's just married. He's going to go to school. He's going to become a mechanical engineer. And he doesn't get this. And suddenly he's going to be separated from his wife for a year. He feels like he's been betrayed. And you know what? He, he knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. He, he's starting to feel bitter towards God. He's starting to get angry towards God. He's getting upset. The time comes. He's got to leave. Just before he leaves, he sees his brother who's out in California getting ready to go to the mission field. His brother gives him this book, uh, Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. It's the story of her husband and the four other missionaries to the Auk Indians who were, uh, who were murdered by the Auk Indians. Chuck says, I don't want to read that. His brother says, take it. He says, I don't want to read it. He says, read it anyway. He gets on this boat. They're going to Okinawa. Oh, his, his brother hands him this. He's waiting to get on the boat. And he starts reading this book that he wasn't going to read. And he's so captivated, he stays up all night reading it. And then he gets on this boat going to Okinawa, and guess what happens? They hit a storm. A couple of days later, along with 3,500 other Marines, I boarded the transport to Okinawa. Four days out. you got to understand something. I had no intention of reading this last night. I'm doing all my stuff, and then I'm looking for something else. And I'm reading this thing. Where'd Chuck get this book? What's this book? Speaking well. Okay, suddenly I'm reading this thing, and he's, in o he's going to Okinawa. And I'm reading this thing. Four days later, a storm churned the Pacific into a tempest that tossed our ship like a toothpick. The driving rain and 50-foot swells mirrored the chaos that had become my spirit. With two more weeks to go before reaching the other side of the world, I read the book again. And what happened was, he's in the middle of the Pacific, He's bitter. He's angry. All these points that Paul Tripp talks about. <laughs> what's that, what's that uh, hymn say? Behind. Be, behind. Oh, hold on. Give me a second. Behind a frowning providence, there lies a what? A smiling face. See, he had his life all planned. Just like you do and I do. He had his plan. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do. 
And suddenly, his plans got interrupted by the one who runs the whole world. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He's angry. He's bitter. He gets this book. He starts reading this book. He's on the storm. He's being thrown up and down like this. And that's not only physically, it's in his heart of hearts. Before you know it, you know what? His whole course of his life, he gets, and you know what? He's going he's gonna to go into the ministry. And then he, starts, he meets this guy in Okinawa who is a mentor to him and shows him all this stuff. And then he winds up coming back here and going to this seminary called Dallas Seminary and meeting this guy named Howard Henry. And uh, John Flavel said, some providence of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. You look backwards and you see the hand of God, even in the storms. Why do I go into all this? I go into this, guys, because God uses storms. And a lot of times when you're in a storm, and a lot of times when you're in a prolonged storm, you're worn out, and you're tired, and you're thinking you're about done, and you're about finished. And I want to say something to you. As I read the scriptures, you're not. Because God works in mysterious ways. And he knows what he's doing. And storms build character. And storms build men. And sometimes it takes, it takes a storm to shake loose our plans so that we'll submit to the plan that he has, which is far, far better. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, that you're in charge of it all. We're not. We wish we were. There, there are times we are at our wit's end because we just don't get what's going on, and we are <coughs> mystified, and we look out ahead, and we are fearful. And we look out ahead, and we don't see any security and things that other people have, we don't have. But we have forgotten about you. You keep forcing us to trust you. And oftentimes, when things look darkest, behind that frowning providence, there lies a smiling face. You're in charge the whole way. We think we're finished. We're just getting started. Pray that you'll encourage us through the storm. You, control, you could stop that storm of our lives in an instant, but you got us in it for a reason. As long as we're in it, help us to trust because we won't always be there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.